Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fothery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. An actuary, an underwriter, and an insurance salesperson are riding in a car. The salesperson has his foot on the gas, the underwriter has his foot on the brake, and the actuary is looking out the back window, telling them where to go. More true than a joke. Ha, ha, ha. That was on Google. And that will serve as our introduction, ladies and gentlemen, to... (laughs) To this week's edition of FNO InsureTech with I got another Lee Boyd one. and Rob Beller. Oh, wait, we're not done. There's more. We're, we're doing actuarial humor today because, as we all know, all the great jokes that you've ever heard are about actuaries. So please go ahead. Two actuaries are duck hunting. They see a duck in the air and they both shoot. The first actuary shot is 20 feet wide to the left. The second actuary shot is 20 feet wide to the right. The actuaries give each other a high five because on average, they shot it. <laughs> Who knew? I, I, I don't even know what to say, which doesn't happen very often. Well, you know, why I are thought... You telling, why, why are you telling us these jokes, Lee? Because we, we recently just talked to a couple of actuaries, and I thought there's got to be some jokes about these guys. And uh, sure enough, there is on Google. They like to joke about themselves. They like to joke about themselves. They do. But -hmm. you know what? Mm -hmm. Uh, Today on our podcast are two actuaries who are just people persons. People people. That's right. Persons of people. Does that make sense? That's right. Lance Poole from Juniper Labs and David McFarlane from Cottery. Two InsureTechs that are run by actuaries. Imagine that. Imagine that. I'm excited about this today. It's a interesting conversation. It's surrounding COVID-19. It's surrounding InsureTech. It's surrounding the future, all with a very thoughtful underlaying, I guess, of where we've been, where we're going. It's it's a good conversation today. It's one that is, uh, I wasn't real sure what to expect out of this conversation, but I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by it. Lance recently authored a white paper on uh, pandemics and insurance. That is a fascinating read and we'll link to it in our podcast social so that you can read it because he has a lot of interesting things to say. And we, when we saw it and we heard about it, we, we thought this would be really interesting to talk about, particularly in light of the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We are. We are. And so um, rather than us jibber-jabbering, that's kind of a Lee term, jibber-jabber, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a term Jab- you'd use, jibber-jabber. Jib- yeah, absolutely. If any of you out there wondering what's Lee like, he's the kind of guy that would use the phrase jibber-jabber. Mm-hmm. We could call that a Leeism. I prefer yeah. to say Lee's a nerd. That's a Leeism. Well, I think today you might use the word nerd a couple of times. Yeah, just wait and see. So without further ado, here's our interview with Lance Poole and David McFarland, two actuaries who run InsureTechs. 
Hey, everybody. We are here today with a, a whole group of people. Lee and I have on two special guests with us, David McFarland from Coterie, coming from us to us from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Lance Poole from Juniper Labs, coming to us from Denver, Colorado. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Doing pretty well. How you doing, Rob? Lee? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank y'all for being on today. Cincinnati and Denver seem to be two hot spots in the world of, of uh, InsureTech. It's exciting to have somebody else from both of those. Thanks. How do you explain that, guys? I can't speak for Cincinnati, but for Denver, you know, you've got 300 days of sunshine. The Rocky Mountains are nearby. Uh, what's not to love? Well, everyone seems to be moving here from all parts of the country. So, yeah, we we definitely can't can't match that in Cincinnati. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we we we've got the Midwest and a lot of insurance companies around us, though. We got, got Great American and American Modern, uh, Western and Southern. Then, of course, we got our Columbus neighbors. You do have a lot of insurance in Ohio, and you have something else that we were talking about before. Oh, man. And that's Skyline Chili. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a, maybe a good reason. I, sorry, I will, not, I will not bash on Skyline Chili. <laughs> do not do that. <laughs> I guarantee you'll regret it. Yeah, I, I will. I will. Well, we're excited today because we have two enormous nerds on our show <laughs> which actually lee it's kind of we kind of have nerds on frequently don't we i would say quite often yeah uh -huh. nerds uh -huh. make the world go round well yeah i mean they get things done and mm -hmm. so um we have two actuaries on the podcast today why don't you guys take a minute and tell us the truth what is an actuary and how do you get to be one lance i'll ask that of you first Okay, so actuary um, can play a lot of different roles. I, the way I like to say it that no one understands is that an actuary prices risk. Um, so we put a price tag on risk. Um, I got there the very traditional way. Um, like many people, I got a master's in statistics. Um, don't you have lots of friends that did that? So, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but instead of becoming Nate Silver and um, making lots of money and writing yeah. all kinds of interesting articles, yeah. uh, pr predicting elections, I, I became uh, an actuary and priced insurance, started out on the, the life insurance side of things, running models. Really, I think at the heart of it is trying to determine, you know, one role is helping the company understand how profitable um, or unprofitable a, a product um, is going to be. How about you, David? I, I agree with that. I, I typically say we assess and quantify risk. I, I did not go about it the, tra I, I, maybe traditional. Um, I, I was a, like a history major in college. And then I, like my senior year, I ended up falling in love with mathematics via a class in what's called formal logic. And so I had made the really dumb decision to switch my major my senior year and then... <laughs> packed uh, multiple like 21 hour semesters in a row to try and figure out how I could get done as soon as possible. And the shortest way to get done was to take the actuarial route. And I didn't know what that word meant at the time. And when a, when a girl asked me if I was taking the actuarial exams, I just nodded dumbly and said, yes. And so now I'm an actuary. It's a great pickup line. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're what you're picking up with that line, what it what it picks up for you, but it is a good pickup line. Uh -huh. Well, I've heard that all girls love actuaries. It's just a well known fact. That's right. 
So true. Yeah. My son, my older son, um, was told by his uh, high school math teacher, because he was very advanced in math, probably like like you all, that he should go into actuarial science. And so we kind of did some discovery on it. And it's actually like a really great, solid, strong career segment. Isn't that true? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the pay is really competitive. There's almost zero unemployment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can quickly be making six figures um, after passing some exams. And then the nice thing too, it, it sets you up to do go do fun tech startup stuff like David and I are doing. I'm not sure about David's perspective, but my take is that if the uh, if the music ever stops on tech startup land, there's always a couple of insurance companies that I could go work for. Right. That's exactly what I was going to ask next. How do you get from the safety and security of being an actuary for a carrier or something like that into the crazy world of startups. Tell us real briefly how that happened for you guys. As for me, I'll kind of go first on this. I started off more traditional in the actuarial space, working for a company, your insurance listeners will probably know NCCI, National Council on Compensation Insurance. And then I went into actuarial consulting, had fun with that. I then worked for a jewelry insurance firm. And then while I was living in Wisconsin doing the jewelry insurance thing, uh, a guy from American Family Ventures was thinking about starting an insure tech over in Chicago. And we just had some kind of ideation sessions on what that would look like. And then he ended up starting uh, ClearCover, and he asked me to join him on that as chief actuary and head of insurance product. And the idea of starting a starting an insure tech, starting an insurance company, whatever you want to call it, was something that was always kind of alluring to me. So I, I joined in with Kyle and helped help with that. And then eventually that helped me come to this next stage of starting Coterie. Cool. What about you, Lance? Yeah, for me, it was uh, I was running product development at uh, carrier in the southeast. Pretty young age, well, you know. One of the things that's interesting about being an actuary, if you can actually look people in the eye when you talk to them, they'll promote you pretty early. <laughs> uh, so I found myself in management, and I convinced uh, my company to send me to Stanford for an exec ed program, and really caught the entrepreneurial bug at Stanford. Um, I guess now, looking back on it, I'd probably caution against insurance companies sending young execs to Stanford um, because you go there and They'll you never want to do cool. You never come back. You want to do cool tech stuff. So um, I happened to make a connection there, and we started a digital mortgage platform, like a white-labeled rocket mortgage. And so that was my kind of first foray out of insurance and into something more tech-related. And so that was Maxwell, correct? That's correct, yep. And, and, and then what happened? Yeah, so Maxwell was doing well. We scaled it to about 30 people, and I got really interested in what was happening in InsureTech and thought to myself, why am I as an actuary running this mortgage tech company and happened to have a neighbor who was doing some really cool things in the data science side of his MGA. And, and so we started scheming about what we could build and that turned into Juniper Labs. Very cool. Well, let's change focus here real quickly and talk about where we are today, which of course, all four of us, I'm sure are probably in our homes sitting at our desks with our pajamas on and some kind of microphone in front of us because we're in the midst of COVID-19 and the whole coronavirus catastrophe that's engulfed the world here in 2020. 
And you guys, Lance, you put together a very interesting white paper on coronavirus and commercial insurance, kind of looking at past pandemics and seeing what kind of lessons we could derive out of this. So instead of me summarizing it, why don't we start with you by telling us why you did this and what did you come up with? Yeah, well, the reason we did this is we were really interested in in knowing what had been done in terms of the, the past look at economic impact. Yeah, and I guess really we started with the question of what's the future going to look like? What are, what's in store for us the next one to two years? And we really didn't think of any way to answer that apart from going back and looking at what happened with Spanish flu, what happened with SARS, what happened with the 08-09 recession. Uh, I think at, in the time too, we wanted, we were hoping to find something encouraging as well. You know, a lot of the press uh, these days is not all that encouraging, and so we started out by by this, this hope of can we find some good news in, in there somewhere? Tell us about it. What did uh, you find? Yeah. So what we found was that you know things that were good news um, is that one businesses can bounce back pretty quickly. Um, so if you look at the 0809 recession, we saw a really high, what we would call recovery rate. So when one business fails, there's another business that is, is founded to, to take its place. So that would be a recovery rate of say like 100%. Um, and you probably see this in, around if a restaurant in your neighborhood goes out of business, another one is started, you know, within a couple months to take its place. And that's what we see in the 0809 recession is that, you know, if there's 700 restaurants that go under, there's, you know, 725 the next year that are founded. So for us, that told us that one, carriers could expect to see higher churn. There's going to be businesses to go under. There's going to be ones that start again. But then two, it's going to tell us that at some point we are going to come out of this. So this too shall pass. The other thing that was really interesting is we are just terrible at predicting the, the future in general. If we looked yes. at some of the reports that were done in 2005, 2006 on what could happen during a pandemic. And what was really interesting is that they, these reports, you know, one from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services predicted that around 2 million people could die in the U.S. in a pandemic. So they, they're sort of in line with high-end predictions of what could happen. But the economic cost they predicted was just nowhere near where we are. So their economic prediction was this could cost over $250 billion in terms of economic toll. So they associated 2 million people dying with $250 billion of economic loss. And you know, we're going to be at 10x that amount. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's fascinating to see, too, that some of the ports got the mortality impact, if you will, and the impact of the, the human suffering, but just the economic toll is, is far greater than anything anyone could have ever thought. Are you surprised then by seeing what's gone on and what's going on? Like you said, this enormous number tens of millions of people unemployed. Knowing what you know now, does it surprise you? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm surprised just with, you know, the amount of shutdown that's had to take place to ensure that the virus doesn't spread and the impact that's had. You know, you think even just shutting down the country for a couple of weeks has enormous economic impact. And of course, it's the right thing to do based on what's happening. But the corresponding toll is surprising. So what is your thought with the world of insure tech startups? Will we see the same averages of failures and then startups next year? Is there still money out there? I mean, what, what do you see happening with the world of insure tech startups? 
Yeah, so Intratech startups have a really unique opportunity here to make adjustments. So one of the things we talk about in the white paper is that as carriers, you should really be evaluating your assumptions. Um, so if you are pricing um, you know, workers' compensation, that product may be priced on assuming that, that the world is continuing to go up and to the right, that payrolls are going to go up. Um, but, but as we're seeing, payrolls are not going up. If you're working in the private auto market, you're probably pricing your product, you know, assuming a, a level of, of driving activity. Uh, and so, you know, for insurance, intertechs, uh, they have a lot of opportunity to, to change quickly, where it might be harder for an established carrier to make some of those changes as quickly as an intertech. And, and in terms of you know, raising money and what that could look like, that's a, probably a great question for David to answer. I know that, that Coterie has um, closed on some funding as well, right. relatively recently, if I'm, if I'm correct. And so that might speak to you know, what intertechs could expect to see from that side. David? Yeah, I, I can get into that. So we we're, we're in a super fortunate position, and I'd love to say like we're really smart and we're able to predict all this, uh, but that's completely not the case. We end up closing on a fairly significant Series A uh, about two weeks before all this went down. So I again uh, super glad that that happened, but um, you know, clearly not not every insure tech is in that position. So there there is a you know, some stuff working against insure techs in in that respect, but in another respect, they, to Lance's point, they have uh, some nimbleness and agility that they can work with. And one of the, the biggest things that I, I think is going to come out from this is their ability to change uh, based on the data that's coming in will, will probably be the biggest asset to them. And what I mean is this, we basically have this, we built up all these tools right, that we can use, that all this data is coming in and it goes through these tools and we pop out an answer, right? And in legacy world, the legacy insurance world, we, things move slowly. And so they're not, they're not able to change the machine very quickly if there's anomalous data that's coming through. But in the insure tech world, they, they have, I guess, more agile systems to where if they do have this anomalous data coming through, they can, they can make adjustments. And I'm, I'm just going to take an example of uh, private passenger auto, right? So right now, uh, in the private passenger auto world, for you know your progressives and Geico's and whatnot, they they base everything on like you know financial responsibility, household makeup, lapses in insurance. Uh, those those are pretty significant factors. And right now, if you look at what has happened, you have all three of those things largely skewed because of what just went on, right? Like twenty. 20 plus million people are out of work. Uh, so these, these people who are you know, more traditionally fairly good risks, now they have this ding of like, hey, I'm out of work. They're, and their financial responsibility scores probably, probably hit because of that. And simultaneously, no one's driving, right? Mm -hmm. So right. I, I'm out of work now and I'm not driving. And so I'm probably not going to pay for car insurance. So I'll go ahead and let that lapse. You know, why, why bother, right? I, I, don't, I don't need my car this month. And so now you have... This go on, right? Good risks who are letting insurance policies lapse and who have you know financial dings and may even be moving in with mom and dad. And in a couple of months, they're going to get jobs again. Their 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 driving behavior is probably going to be better than ever because they're you're probably not going to drive as much. And they're going to go out looking for insurance. And based on the insurance models that are currently there, they're going to get rejected by just about everyone. And they're going to have these premiums that are sky high because they have lower quote unquote financial responsibility, at least based on the models. And they, uh, they let their, their insurance lapse. And 
the cool thing is, is InsureTechs can can think about that and make an adjustment. I, I'm not confident that the legacy carriers will be able to make adjustments so quickly. But the thing that the legacy carriers have are deep pockets. Absolutely. And it, that that's, I mean, that's the big benefit in on their end. Now, new business, though, is a pretty pretty big component of what these legacy carriers are going after. And you know, if most of their new business dries up, that is going to hurt them. But to your point, uh, I think it's your point, they can weather that storm. Mm-hmm. Or to your, your guys' term, they could survive instead of thrive. Exactly. Yeah, there's also a lot of, you know, there's an expense issue to be dealt with as well at bigger carriers. And it's a little harder to sometimes trim on expenses. So as we've said, exposures are going down on almost every product line. Um, so you have, you know, less premium to cover the the given expenses. And so you're going to need to make some trims. Uh, InsurTechs, I mean, there's been several InsurTechs that have laid off a lot of people a lot, pretty, quick, yeah. pretty quickly. Um, you know, Metro Mile, if we talk about the auto world, they laid off, you know, 100 people, a third of their workforce. You know, yeah. a, big, a big established carrier travelers isn't going to be able to lay off a third of their workforce. At least I, I hope they don't <laughs> for the unemployment number's sake. Uh, so I think that's another w- place too. If you're an intratech, you don't have the deep pockets, but also you can be pretty nimble in terms of trimming quickly um, in order to save on expenses. Sure. And I think a lot of people never had any idea of, of what an event like this might have meant to their business model. Yeah. Like Metro Mile, that's based on how much you drive. Right. Right. That it would go from we don't drive a lot to we don't drive at all. That That's pretty threatening. Let's talk about one of the things that we've seen recently, which is like return of premiums. My insurer is sending us back at our house, is sending us back money, rebating us. I, I don't know exactly what you call it. What do you think about that as a strategy? It's it's a little bit of a strategy. It's a little bit of just anticipation. Uh, some some states have kind of already started mandating that for the period where uh, there's not really any exposure, you need mm-hmm. to give back premium. And so, in the name of adequacy, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if there's no exposure, if you know you're not driving at all, you probably should re- return some of that money. Um, we do this explicitly like we do this like as as function in the workers comp world right you forecast what's going to happen in the year and then you have your premium audit after the end of the year and you know if you didn't really have that many workers you you give back premiums you have more more payroll than you you take more uh, i think it's just like the you know, personal auto world and and other other lines are going to do this too so it make makes sense from an adequacy standpoint yeah i got back uh, $30 or i'm I'm due to get back $30 from my carrier. Um, so it, it's, you know, every dollar helps, but my, my takeout last week was $70. Uh, so it's not, <laughs> not quite covering, you know, the, uh, the expenses as much as I would like. Let's talk about claims. We, we love claims. We're in the claims business. Um, what, what is this going to do to claims? What's, what's your senses there? I'll let David jump in on that. This is going to be super interesting. Uh, I mean, all right, so claims in various lines of business. Uh, workers' comp. Let's go into workers' comp for a minute. I know you guys are mainly working on the property side, but I think uh, this will have a lot of impact on the workers' comp claim side of things. So when usually in recessions, when you lay off a bunch of people, uh, you end up having a lot of workers' comp claims. And the reason is, is uh, 
some of them are, are legitimate, right? Like this guy has been working for years. He hurt his back and he just decided not to make a claim because he's just continuing to work. Um, but now his job's potentially on the line. So he's like, hey, you know, I, I should probably go ahead and make a claim uh, about my back issue before I get canned, right? That that happens. So you sometimes see an increase in, in claims during recessionary times. You definitely see uh, moving, moving forward when the recession improves, um, so you start coming out of recession and people start hiring, you end up seeing more claims. And this is largely because these employers end up hiring people who are, by the fact that they are being hired, um, new to the job, right? They are, they are new hires and somewhat less experienced in what they're doing. Uh, this can be even more true or more impactful in the cases where you have mass redeployment of skill sets. And if, if we look at what we're going through right now, where we have all of these, you know, particularly restaurant and retail workers who may not be going back to the same job that they were at before, largely because, you know, frankly, people are not as inclined to go to restaurants and you know, brick and mortar stores, you're going to have a complete redeployment of skill sets into these other areas, like I don't, whatever, you know, furniture making possibly because, you know, Wayfair stock is up like 48%. Uh, and that's going to end up causing a, a high amount of claims in, let's say, the workers' comp space. Now, the interesting thing about that is in workers' comp, what you're going to have simultaneously is you're going to have a sharp decrease in payroll, right? Because everyone's getting laid off. Right. Uh, and in premium. Then, and premium, yeah, therefore the premium is going to go down. So workers' comp carriers aren't going to be thrilled. Um, you've had a series of rate decreases over the recent years. So now we're probably going to get to the point where we're hiring on new workers, right? So probably lower lower payroll than the previous guys, yet we're going to have higher claims rates associated with those guys, and yet we're not going to have uh, the premium to to account for it because the, you know, the rate increases have not come in yet. Uh, so I imagine we're going to have some wavy times for workers' comp uh, coming up, simply because you know, you're going to have rate increase after rate increase to try and catch up with all of this. Uh, and clearly, the uh, the insurance companies aren't going to get the return from uh, the investment side of things to to help with that. So, it should be an interesting time for workers' comp. Lance, yeah, the other place that's really interesting is what's happening with with business interruption coverage. Uh, as well. I mean, that's kind of the, the talk of, of the industry right now is to see what's going to happen there and whose claims are going to be paid out. Um, and I, you know, I can't predict the future there. I've already talked about how bad we are at predicting the, the future. Um, but I know there's enormous pressure on carriers around those claims. Um, and I think that's part of what you're seeing with, with some of rebates and other things that carriers are doing to, to show um, good that they're doing in the industry um, to hopefully get that in front of regulators so they can they can sh show some evidence of, of giving back. So with all of this that's going on and trying not to predict the future, I mean, I mean, right now we're talking to two really smart guys who know insurance, they know risk. How will the future of the insurance policy change? I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, we're going to have to ask different questions now. Now with this pandemic that's happened, we're going to have to rate policies a little different, right? Is am I thinking that right? What do you What do y'all think about that, Lance? Yeah, I think we're definitely going to see the application change. We're going to see forms change. That's part of what you're seeing with 
InsureTechs right now is attempting to ask different questions. Um, you know, I've heard a great story from an underwriter who created a program in the 90s who said the only question they would ask for contractors is how old is your truck? Um, because hmm. if they knew, if you had a new truck, you must have been doing real, really well with your business <laughs> um, versus if your truck hadn't been replaced in several years, then what's, what's wrong? Um, so there was this you know, one question that could get to the essence of the risk. And so I think that's part of what we'll be seeing is different questions that help undercover the underlying risk. Um, and the proxies will need to change. I mean, before uh, your credit score and your continuous coverage was a proxy for the risk. And going forward, that's going to change. And so the questions that need to be asked will change as well. David, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, as far as like the forms itself, transparency is going to have to increase. Um, I'm curious to what level it's going to increase and you know what, what we're going to see on on that side, I assume it's going to be pushed by regulators uh, rather than the customers, because generally we don't see people care about insurance that much. And I, I don't want to sound negative, but I, I'm not confident that even this pandemic will cause people to really look through, you know, a 200 page policy, right? Like maybe, maybe it will, uh, maybe people will really think about insurance more, but I'm, I'm, I'm not confident about that. I, but what Lance is saying about rating in general and the assumptions that we have and how we can identify risks, those are key parts that that will need to change because of this anomalous data that's coming through. David, I want to ask you about BI. As somebody who works in the commercial insurance space, what are your thoughts there? Right. Business interruption. Yeah, business yeah. interruption. Yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, for those for those who don't know, but I, I think most of your listeners do, um, what happens is if your business is shut down for a particular period of time, um, if you have this coverage, the insurance company will pay uh, the loss of income during the shutdown. Now, post SARS, uh, most of the insurance companies in the United States said, yeah, we'll sell business interruption insurance, except we're going to exclude communicable diseases or pandemics and stuff like that. There are also other types of exclusions on insurance policies that, that are similar to this. Um, but clearly, like this was not a big issue in the United States up until today. And so now we have this instance of uh, many, many claims of business interruption insurance, uh, where mm -hmm. these companies are advocating, like we should get some type of indemnification, some type of being made whole, right? Like paying, paying our income because we were forced to shut down. And the, the problem is the insurance companies are saying like, look, we simply have excluded this. We put it in writing. It's a, it's a big exclusion. It says no. Right. And, uh, Things are kind of being fought right now about like, well, you know, should the insurance companies pay? Should they not? And uh, if if the regulators do do this, if they do make it so that insurance companies need to pay, it's going to cause a huge unfunded liability. A li boy, we did the insurance companies did not collect enough premium to pay that, and so it's going to put right. uh, tons of strain on the insurance companies. And then going forward. You're going to have these insurance companies who will willingly give you this coverage. Some will, but it's going to cost you a ridiculous amount to to get it. And so, like you, mm -hmm. I, it's one of those situations where, like, I don't know if most of these businesses are going to be willing to pay twenty five thousand dollars for business interruption insurance uh, to to include pandemics. 
Right. The kind of uh, premium to make it actuarially sound. Right. Exactly. Would be uh, unheard of. Lance, any thoughts on businesses through this? The other dynamic that's at play here is that many of the carriers that, as David mentioned, this liability that's out there, if they were to have to pay these claims, many of those carriers are small regional carriers that are supporting small businesses. So you know, not every carrier is Travelers or the Hartford. You know, there's there's a lot of small regional companies that would go under if they were faced to pay out these claims. And there's a lot of small businesses that that's who they rely on. And if their insurance company is bankrupt, um, has been put into receivership, then they're going to have a hard time finding coverage. So I think it mm-hmm. just takes from, it really kind of undoes what the government is trying to do with a small business bailout. Um, it, just, it just creates another bailout that's going to have to happen of insurance companies if they're going to have uh, pay these claims, and you're, you're probably, you know you're talking to actuaries who think a lot about how was the product designed, how was the product priced. You know, the product wasn't designed to cover this kind of um, event, this kind of a loss. Um, so I, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. But I've have a lot of concern for the small regional carriers if um, if they're forced to pay claims. We see something similar to this with earthquake insurance. And one of the things I'm, I'm hearing, I live in California and of course we have earthquakes and um, earthquakes are excluded in like every policy. You have to pay either into a, a risk pool like the California Earthquake Authority or, or private earthquake insurance. It's all very expensive. But one of the questions is if there were a catastrophic, a significantly catastrophic event, would the government come in and, and maybe push on carriers to change the coverage <laughs> after the fact. Do you guys see that as even possible th- through the courts? Un- unfortunately, it does happen. Uh, it's happened many times in the workers' comp system where you have this kind of somewhat ambiguous, it's not even ambiguous, it can be fairly explicit language, and courts, you know, many, many courts will decide, no, we think uh, this is how it should be interpreted. And you know, NCCI, I used to do this all the time for NCCI, we'll write up these memos saying like, hey, this is going to you know, severely negatively impact your workers' comp system. Carrier's going to lose lots of money and you should really reconsider this because it creates this huge unfunded liability. And I mean, it, it happens. Now, looking looking at something that I think we all can remember is back in you know, 9-11, um, that was something, terrorism and terrorist events are usually excluded in your insurance policy, right? Like we, we're not going to cover those things generally. Uh, but clearly people needed help when that happened, businesses specifically. And so instead of just saying like every insurance policy must come with terrorist coverage, what we created was a a federal mandate, TRIA, and that's been uh, renewed on several Mm -hmm. other names. Uh, But that extra 3% of premium essentially creates a, a little bit of funding to help out when those types of events happen. Lance, I want to ask you about the tail on this. One of the interesting things to me about this pandemic is we're writing we're writing the playbook kind of every day because though, like you said, there there was think there's been thinking on this for some time. You mentioned to, back in two thousand and five, and and I've even heard of more recent planning that was done by various government organizations. It seems that because of the particular nature of the disease of COVID, that you know we we have to 
judge this kind of every day how it goes. What are your thoughts on there about the tail of this thing and the, the effect that that's going to have? Because we're not done with it today. I mean, we're not done with it apparently or seemingly until there's some kind of um, medical relief for it. What's your thought? Well, it's been said that hope is not a strategy. As much as we want to hope that things get better, I certainly do. I sort of hope that we're back to work, that things have resumed. I hope that my kids can go to you know summer camp, all those things. But, but that, you know, like we like we're saying, it doesn't mean that's going to be the case. If you look back, just to give you kind of two ranges, if you look back at uh, the Spanish flu of 1918, from what we've read in our research is that by 1921, uh, by and large, the the company was kind of back to to pre pandemic levels. So that's, you know, kind of two year range, obviously, the ability to treat Spanish flu and uh, vaccine and the technology is not um, what it was uh, then as what we have today. So hopeful that we can do something better than that. Um, if you were to see, you look at SARS, the Hong Kong economy, you know, bounced back within a quarter or two from SARS. Um, now, SARS, you know, only affected a little over 8,000 people, was contained to a small geographic region, um, and didn't have near the impact as what we've seen with COVID-19. So I don't think we, we should be thinking that we will be back to normal in a quarter or two, sort of what we call V-shaped recovery. Um, this definitely stands to be more of a U-shaped recovery and, you know, could last as long as a year or two as, you know, what the country went through in 1918. So do you think the economy today, the world today, is better equipped to deal with that than it was in 1918? I mean, you're talking about 100 years ago. Are we more elastic today, more flexible? I think so. There's more, things are more interconnected. Um, so that's certainly very different than 1918. But I, I think the ability uh, to, to treat this, I mean, it seems like the world's brightest minds are all focused on solving this one problem. Um, so I'm an optimist by nature and am optimistic that all those smart people, all those resources being thrown at this one problem will result, result in some solution. It's really hard to know what that looks like now as we're all you know, trapped inside our homes and working from home and having to stay six feet apart from everyone. Uh, but I'm, I'm confident that all those people will come up with a good solution. What role do you think social media has played in this whole pandemic? Do, do you think it's helped us uh, get communication out or do you think it's hurt us by getting the wrong communication out david what do you think on that one? Oh man I, i'm probably the worst person to ask about this <laughs> <laughs> first off i'm an actuary so i'm not very social and secondly like i, I definitely don't have any social media accounts but uh, i read the news so maybe that can inform it um i have not been super impressed with how social media has uh, has impacted things uh the spread of information and you know potentially misinformation has caused you know spikes in you know panic in some respects and it was one thing like we're back you know a while ago before we had these these outlets we would have news from somewhat reliable news sources uh whereas now we just have a lot of information that's flying around and you know probably the most uh, the most polarizing things spike interest right and so it, it lends itself to to cause issues of hoarding and and panic behavior and whatnot, right. which is is not ideal. Lance, what do you think? 
I agree with that too. I do think there's uh, more of a recognition of some of the important things to do to help with the pandemic, you know, help with social distancing to, um, you know, the word has been gotten out around the precautions we should take. I guess the better way to say that. And mm-hmm. I don't know without social media, that would be, but you, as David mentioned, you get the good and the bad, right? There's this general awareness that's much greater than we would have without social media. Uh, but we also get all the, all the bad in terms of the, the fear mongering that can, that can go on or as a result of this. I would agree with you. I think that, you know, every night me and my wife go uh, and sit on the couch. And we <laughs> always chat about what all we saw on uh, social media that either helped or hurt the whole world of this pandemic. I think it, it can shape everything. That was, that was just my thought about in, you know, 1918, social media didn't exist. Right. And, uh, and it does now. So it's a very different, it's a great way to get uh, communication out, but sometimes it's that game of telephone. And just the the, the message changes uh, as it moves throughout the whole group. I, I want to ask you guys about running an insure tech through this. Let's let's talk for a minute about you know being the CEO of a startup through this process. I'm sure it's affected you both a little differently. Like David said, they ran into some really great timing vis-a-vis their funding round. What's happening in Juniper Labs, and what kind of challenges does this represent for you guys? Yeah, for us, it's uh, it's it creates opportunities. So that's that's you know as exciting that as we've mentioned, there's new opportunity that it didn't exist a month ago. Um, but the challenges are you know, sources of funding. You know, raising VC capital is much harder in this environment. Um, so we've tried to position ourselves to be in a place where we can control our own destiny, where we can be cash flow positive and not have to rely on on VC funding as, as one capital source going forward. So that means we just have to be more creative um, in terms of, of ways to generate revenue um, for us. You know, we've got SaaS services, but I've also um, taken on a handful of consulting related engagements that we may have said no to earlier, um, but have said yes to because we think one way for us to, to, to learn, deliver value, um, but also brings in some cash in the door because um, the name of the game as a startup CEO is survival. I mean, you can't win if, right. you're, if you're not around um, to uh, to take advantage of the opportunity. So for us, it's how do we extend our runway by by six months or so? Um, how do we create more cash now? And yeah, you have to get resourceful. David? Yeah, I, I think one, a strategy that a lot of SaaS products or even insurance products utilizes is like a negative initial cash outlay, right? Let's say your cost of acquisition, and then you make it up on the subsequent terms, right? So in insurance, you lose money on the first policy, and then you make money on the subsequent ones. Uh, this this works really well if there's available capital. Uh, so most large insurance companies, they have lots of available cap- capital, and so they can do that kind of stuff. Whereas insurtechs were largely leveraging the you know, essentially venture capital firms, private equity, stuff like that. That source of capital has... I don't want to say largely dried up, but um, it's definitely a little shyer than it used to be. And I think you're going to see a lot of uh, startups kind of accept that hopefully quickly and make some innovative changes to how they get profitable. And so as far as like what that means for Coterie, again, thankfully, we, we've had a good, uh, you know, good round that came right before this. We're 
we're largely focused on like building out our product, improving that, uh, continuing to get partners on board. Thankfully, we had a, a decent unit economic structure, uh, but just continuing to improve that. And really, I, I think the biggest thing is um, just investing in our people. Uh, right now, there, there's like always we as people kind of like these three sources of uh call it volatility, whatever, like three sources of stress. Like you have your family, like your the people you interact with uh, at home, uh, you have your your work, and then you, all, you have like this macro, uh, like what's going out on, in, in the world. And right now what's going on in the world, it, you know, it's super volatile, lots of stress. Um, what's going on with your family, for some people, it's, it's much more stressful because they're with them all the time, right? There's a lot of, a lot of time to be spent. And that, that wasn't always the case when you're heading to work. And for many, unfortunately, um, the work right now is a super stressful time because, you know, they could be cash strapped or, you know, they're obviously not, not uh, hitting their goals. And so what we're trying to do, at least at Coterie, is like continue to promote um, a, a sense of stability within, within the work, uh, within that work environment, um, you know, still maintain some, some cultural events. Like we'll, we'll hang out after work and, you know, do, do zoom game nights. Uh, we'll do zoom lunches and just, just so that people have a little bit more of a connection, a stress. Yeah. Connection and stress-free outlet, right? Like just time that you can spend with your team. Um, so we've been encouraging people just to, you know, get on, get on zoom and just chat, you know, not necessarily about work, but just spend time hanging out with each other. Um, while, you know, while getting work done, we we're, we're pretty, pretty focused on our goals, but really making the the cultural part important. Lance, let's talk about ease of use. Certainly. I'm very interested in that. That's something I preach in our company all the time. And you guys are involved in that at Juniper labs. Can you tell me what shape that takes for you guys? Yeah. So we have a pre-fill product and what a prefill product does is a company, you know, it's going through the application process can provide their name, uh, location, website, a few pieces of information and based on data that we have access to can fill out the rest of the application ahead of time. Um, so taking the time where it might've taken 10 minutes to get the application down to a couple of minutes and uh, in a world where, where things will increasingly be moving more digital uh, we think that's a really important part of the process. We had some conversations on some recent episodes about customer engagement. What are, what are your thoughts there, and how does Juniper work with that? So, with customer engagement, you know, one of the things we want to do is help to make the experience as as easy as as possible. Um, that's that's part of how I think you can you can create really solid customer engagement is by you know, taking a process that, that could be long and arduous um, and you know, making it simpler. The other thing you can do is, is try and get really targeted um, and try and deliver a person a quote that makes a lot of sense for them. Um, you know, right. Don't ask uh, someone that's a florist if they do boiler work. Uh, for instance, <laughs> um, so using what you know about a business um, to uh, you know make the the whole experience of applying for for insurance more engaging, mm-hmm. and just by making it smarter, if you will. Yeah, that's right. I know that you know mm-hmm. David and Coterie's done a lot of work there as well, and can speak to to customer engagement just as well as we can too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is, I think, based on some some sessions Lance and I have had in general, <laughs> talking about how to make it a more friendly user experience. But uh, what what we like to do, we we just have this thesis that people don't generally care about insurance, 
And so if that's the case, like they probably want to make that application process the least time intensive thing, but also the most accurate thing to get to what they need uh, in terms of insurance coverage. And so Lance said it well, right? You should not ask an accounting office if they have a swimming pool, right? Or a playset, right? It doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what we can do is we can take data from sources that are veritable, that are true, right? And we can take that data and understand the risk, hopefully uh, to the point where we can we can provide a level of coverage uh, information. But what, what we can also do is we can tap into, let's say, software that that you're already using to run your business. So now, you know, you have you have the SaaS product that tracks your revenue or payroll or something like that. Well, it turns out most insurance is based off of revenue and payroll and stuff like that. And we can take that information in via API, uh, get you an insurance policy that is commensurate with the risk that you exhibit. And as tracked by those systems, so that way you're not you're not printing off uh, your your income statements every single year or projecting out you know what your hiring plan is for the next twelve months and then running cross town to your agent. Instead, right. it's just all hooked into the systems that you're using. Yeah. Well, we are we're about out of, out of time here. Yeah, I'm sorry we ran over you guys. I I apologize. I, I understand. I understand how easy it is to, you know, just continue talking to actuaries. We're, we're pretty, <laughs> well, pretty enthralling. <laughs> I love it. It was actually really good. I can't, I can't believe how hard you guys are on yourself. I mean, actuaries are like the cornerstone of this business. Yeah. Super, super right? smart people. You have to yeah. be self-deprecating, yeah. I guess. That comes with the territory, right? Poking fun at yourselves. They, they test well, on it. Being an actuary, I mean, let's be, let's. Full, let's be honest. It's uh, it's a pretty nerdy job, right? Oh, Come yes, on, <laughs> it's a nerdy job. Yeah, it definitely. It's is. pretty and, nerdy. And you're you're talking to more of the two outgoing actuaries there are. So, yeah, I was about to say y'all are not the typical um, ones I would think about. I want to go to an actuarial conference. What's that like? It's probably like that HR <laughs> conference I went to. Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, you, you can find, you know, all you find a wide variety of people. There's a, you know, range just like at any conference. But yeah, by mm-hmm. by and large, you know, the 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 social skills will not be all that high. Um, you know, probably we we have the most fun when the conference is in Vegas and we can go play poker or use oh, yeah. use all the you know ah. probability skills we have to to our advantage. Do you do well at the tables as as a result of your education? I feel like I do pretty well. I, I really like to play poker. Uh, have enjoyed that. Um, you know, obviously can't play professionally or anything. It's like you know, just for fun with with home games when that was allowed. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I like using that part of my brain for sure. Help us here. What what games should one play in Las Vegas, and what games should one stay away from? I mean, as far as the highest probability roulette right like isn't that the highest i mean you're still negative expected value but i think that's the highest right Lance? yeah yeah that and then and then craps is like pretty craps. good as well too um and then you know blackjack if you can play blackjack like completely by the book uh in terms of you know when when you double down you know when you hit that sort of thing um you can do okay there too again you're still you're still going to lose money in the long run um but it's a, a way to kind of minimize how much you lose okay well here's the deal guys this year if there is an insure tech connect which they say there will be and when we're all there we're going to the casino 
Lee and I are going to the casino with you two. Yes. Okay. Yes, with you we're two. Gonna ta- we're going to tag along and we're going to expect to win. And if we don't, we'll just, we'll, we'll contact Coterie and we'll take out a policy we'll send before. The, send the invoice. <laughs> That's right. That sounds, that sounds great. I'm in. Yeah. Sounds good. Listen, we really enjoyed having you guys with us. And this is our initial actuarial episode. Okay. So I think I'm happy. I think it went well. I'm very satisfied. Yeah, very satisfied. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it was a blast. Okay. It was a blast to, to be on. Thank you guys for for having having us on. And I really have to mention you by name, Lance. Thanks for coming, and you too, David. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Lee. I don't think actuaries are funny. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, I mean, they were regular guys. I don't. Why are they so hard on themselves? I don't know why they're so hard on themselves. I really? would like to be their friends. Not only regular guys, but really intelligent, bright people who know insurance well and had a lot of interesting things to say. I agree. I agree. I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that they even had things that they didn't have time to say, but uh, they they look at they look at this whole thing from a different perspective. Agreed. Because of where they've been, right? It's very statistical. Mm-hmm. And uh, even that whole white paper is uh, very statistical driven. So it's it, it was a great conversation. But, you know, as far as that went, the white paper and what came out of that, I think that a lot of it was kind of hopeful that maybe, um, you know, maybe economically and socially we'll be able to bounce back. Although there's some things that socially I hope, you know, we don't bounce back too quick. Like what, Rob? Um, I like being at home. You like being at home? <laughs> I like not having to travel all the time. Yeah, I've heard that from a couple of people that they, they enjoy staying at home mm-hmm. uh, and that they, you know, they're okay if they stay at home a little longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, but overall, I mean, I think that, you know, one thing about, the great thing about our country is we're super resilient. And so uh, I, I'm sure that we'll, we will, forge forward as quickly as we can yeah yeah and that's what it seems like right seems like we're moving forward and uh it's a very interesting time right now but yeah i think so yeah and uh, a couple of interesting companies with uh with uh interesting stories using data to to make a difference in insurance it's kind of cool good stuff yeah yeah i'm glad they were on We thank Lance and David for being with us, and we ask that you check out their companies, Juniper Labs and Coterie, and that's it. And until next time, we thank you for being with us, for being part of our little experiment here, and goodbye, everybody.